for our text today, uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we'll start in verse 19, read through verse 25 in just a moment. We'll go back to the question we've been asking uh, at the beginning of every sermon over these past couple weeks. Does the local church make any difference in your life? If the local church, if Redeemer specifically, was missing from your life, would your life really be any different at all? We've looked at the biblical reality of needing one another, the fact that we need one another in the body of Christ. First Corinthians 12, we, we truly actually need one another. We are collective parts of one body, and we are all needed in order for that body to function properly, and those, that body is expressed through local bodies we call local churches. And then last week, we considered the truth from 1 John 4 that we are to love one another. And using John's words there in 1 John 4, we can't, we can't say we love God and not love one another. John calls that person a liar. Anyone who says he loves God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Um, and so we need one another. We love one another. This morning, we're going to look at the biblical reality of encouraging one another. And the primary context of these one another's in the New Testament is the local church. New Testament letters were written, including this letter, were written to groups of believers gathered in local assemblies, and we uh, collectively be- belong to a group of one another's. For those of us here, we belong to the group of one another's known as Redeemer Church. And in fact, we've designed church membership and we've designed our church membership process to truly reflect the height, the heightened value of this biblical reality of one another. Uh, a, a common a common idea, concept in, in our day uh, is is this reality of um, I'll, just, I'll worship in isolation. I, I'll, I'll just kind of do my own thing. I'll worship Jesus on, in my own way, on my own time. Um, and I don't really need the one another aspect. I don't need the one another. Uh, which sounds good to um, a self-serving kind of mentality. Uh, the problem is it doesn't it doesn't work with scripture. Now we should worship in isolation, like we should individually and privately worship the Lord. Like that should be part of the regular rhythm of our lives through prayer, through personal time worship, through music, through time in the Word. Like we should worship the Lord individually, uh, but we can't exclusively worship the Lord in isolation. We have to come together to fulfill the biblical command, the biblical reality of all of these one another's, especially this one this morning, to encourage uh, one another. And so let, let me ask specifically with this gathering, what, what importance does the weekly worship gathering here at Redeemer have in your life specifically, but also in the life of Redeemer? We think of this collectively as a body. Like, is this something we just do because of what we're supposed to do? Or does this actually have meaning? And then you individually, me individually, is it something that you do because it's what you're supposed to do? Or does this weekly gathering have meaning? If this weekly gathering was removed from your life, would your life be really all that different? That's probably a good di- diagnostic question, if you think. If, if, this was, if I was separated from this if by, by choice or by circumstance, would my life be impacted? Why is this gathering of believers, this, this expression of the local church, gathering weekly, so important? It's because, according to the Bible, we're members of one another. We belong to one another. We need one another. This is how we love one another. And when we, when we, when we aren't able to worship with the body collectively, is, it, is that an expression of our Christian life that we actually miss? Or is it really not that big of a deal? And so, 
Hebrews chapter 10 uh, gives us some insight into into the reality of coming together as the body of Christ, the importance of coming together uh, as the body of Christ. And just before we read the text here, this starting in verse 19, um, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, is the beginning of a major transition in the emphasis of the book of Hebrews. And so the writer of Hebrews up to this point has been writing primarily doctrine, reminding the, the, the Hebrew believers, these Jewish background believers, of the supremacy of Christ and the fact that Jesus is superior to any Old Testament person, any Old Testament institution, any Old Testament ritual, any Old Testament place, the temple. And since Jesus is supreme, that brings us to chapter 10, verse 19, therefore, you should do this. And so this is the first, really, admonition in the book of Hebrews. And this admonition here, to, as we'll get to in verse 24 and 25, to meet together, is built on rich doctrine. This is not just something that we do. This is informed with doctrine. Our coming together in a weekly rhythm is purposeful. And so let's read Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so this this text comes at this key pivotal point in the book of Hebrews, where the writer has spent word after word pointing these Hebrew background believers to the majesty and the glory and the beauty of Jesus, and then comes to chapter 10, verse 19, in this letter, and gives a a, a therefore, and then issues three commands. You see the commands, they all start with the words, let us, verse 22, let us draw near, verse 23, let us hold fast, and verse 24, let us consider. And so let's, let's think about the first command here in verse 22. And notice that these are all plural. These are all us statements. Number one, let us draw near to God. The first command the writer of Hebrews gives to the church is, let us draw near to God. And, and so we see it there in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. But he's building on reasons why we should, why we must, why we actually can draw near to God in verses 19 and 20. So we can and we should draw near to God first by the blood of Jesus. So verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we had confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And so we can draw near, we should draw near, and we actually must draw near to God because of the blood of Jesus. So the blood of Jesus gives us confidence before God when before the blood of Jesus is applied to us, what do we have before God? Certainly not confidence. We better have fear. Because we justly stand condemned before God. And so when you justly stand condemned because of sin before the one who is perfectly holy and righteous in all his ways, you should be fearful. You should be greatly afraid. But here, the writer of Hebrews says, no, we have confidence 
to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. This, this word confidence, it carries the idea of having authorization. We have the authorization to draw near to God, to come before God. And our authorization is not on anything that we bring to the table. The authorization is only on the basis of the blood of Christ. And so, since we have the blood of Jesus, we can draw near. But notice how he says we are to draw near. We're to draw near with confidence. We're not, we're not going before a king as a bunch of mere peasants, hoping that we'll be accepted before him. Right? We're going before him with confidence. Not on our own merits or our own works or our own achievements, but we're going before him with confidence on the merits and works and achievements of Christ alone, by the blood of Jesus. Now, think about how different this is for us in the New Testament, on this side of the cross and the empty tomb. The Old Testament saints were incredibly fearful in their approach before God. As you see God beginning to appear to his people in the wilderness, and then as the Old Testament continues to unfold, the, the holy places here, verse 19, you see it, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, the holy places for the Old Testament mind represented the presence of God. And to approach the presence of God in, in, just, in just a minute, improper way, meant imminent death. And so you didn't approach God with confidence. You approached God very systematically and, and often fearfully, all pointing to the fact that in every way we are insufficient, one is coming who is in every way sufficient, Christ. And so by the blood of Christ, now we don't have to, we don't have to come before God in fear. We don't have to come before God groveling and begging. Now we come before Him with confidence that we're going to be accepted and received as sons and daughters before Him. Now how does this happen? Verse 20 tells us, by this new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. So the writer calls the curtain there in verse 20, the flesh, the body of Christ. And the curtain that in the Old Testament reality expressed and demonstrated limited access to God's presence. Now, the writer says, no, the curtain is actually the curtain of, of the flesh of Christ and now grants access to all who believe. And so, on the merits of Christ, we have confidence in drawing near to God. Flip over to chapter 9 and look at verse 11. Chapter 9, verse 11, the writer's considering the same reality of Christ being our access to God. Chapter 9, verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not through the one made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Same phrase that's used in verse 19. He entered once for all in the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So the writer's making a connection in the Jewish mind that would have made perfect sense because the priest only went before God on a, in a sacrificial system where blood is, where sacrifices are made, blood is applied certain ways, and all these things had to be done properly or right, or the priest would die. Like, God's holiness would kill the priest. And so now the writer is saying, but when Christ appeared as this high priest, and so look at verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ? who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. How much more will it purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So the picture there is that Christ is the high priest and the sacrifice. 
Jesus is our high priest. He's the one interceding on our behalf before God. But he's also the sacrifice that makes that intercession possible. And so since, back to chapter 10 and verse 19, since we have the blood of Christ applied to us through the gospel, we can and we should draw near to God. We have this confidence to draw near by the blood of Jesus. That's the language there in verse Verse 19, since we have confidence in our holy places by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way he opened for us. And so what the first reason we should draw near to God is the blood of Jesus. The second reason that we should draw near, we can, we must draw near to God, is the ministry of Jesus. Verse 21, he refers to him here in the same language he uses in chapter 9 and verse 11. And since we have a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. So Christ is our high priest. He's our high priest in the fact that he intercedes before God with us as even this sacrifice. But we also saw from Scripture that he is constantly interceding for us. He is still interceding for us. Chapter 4 and verse 14 of Hebrews. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. So since we have a high priest, verse, 20, verse 21, there's a phrase that we need to explain to help us understand who he's referring to here. Since we have a great high priest, since we have a great priest over the house of God, the house of God. So for the, for the Old Testament mind, the house of God would have been what? It would have been the temple, right? It would have been some type of structure, the temple or even the tabernacle in the wilderness wanderings. But according to... The teachings of the New Testament, the house of God is no longer a building, but the house of God is now a people. Chapter 3, verse 6. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And this is the same writer here, chapter 3, verse 6. And we are his house. We, you and I, are the house of God collectively. This is the same similar language that that Paul is using as as he uses the illustration of the body in 1 Corinthians 12. And so we, we can draw near by the ministry of Jesus and by the blood of Jesus. So here's the picture. The picture the writer's painting for us is that Jesus, our great high priest, performed all work necessary in order for us to be given access to God. And as God, he still constantly serves us as the house of God. Constantly serves as this high priest. And so based on these two truths, since we have the blood of Christ, since we have the ministry of Christ, we can and we must Draw near to God. And we can only do this on the merits of Christ. There's no room for prideful boasting here. Not at all. In fact, this reality should drive us to deeper humility. So based on these two truths, we can, we must draw near to God. And then the writer goes on in verse 22 and describes three ways that we actually draw near to God. With a true heart and full faith with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and with bodies washed by water. All of these phrases referring to the fact that when the blood of Christ is applied to the sinner's life, that person is clean. There's a shadow going back to these ceremonial washings that would have to happen in the Old Testament where the priest would have to wash a certain way before he goes into the presence of God. And the writer here says, no, our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Our bodies have been washed by pure water. What is this sprinkling? What is this pure water that has washed our hearts and our bodies is, is Christ and the ministry of Christ. And so there's no longer any need for us to, to clean up our acts. Because Christ has cleaned us up. 
And this, the, the priest washing in the Old Testament, it was all an external demonstration. You see what's incredibly different about our washing is that it's internal. Right? He's, he's washed our hearts. He's cleaned our hearts. And so, therefore, we can be seen as pure before God because of Christ's work on our behalf. And so, since all of these realities are true, what are we to do? Verse 22, let us draw near. Let us draw near. Now, our access to God in Christ is an individual and a corporate reality. You, as a redeemed son or daughter of the king, if you are saved, you have full access to God. You need no mediator because Christ is your mediator. You need no priest. You need no go-between because Christ is your high priest. Christ is your go-between. So you, individually, have full and complete access to God. And we, as a body, have full and complete access to God. So just get, get the reality that, that's, that's going on here with the language. Like, individually, we have access to God, but you put all of the individuals together, you become a collective body, the local church, and we have access to Christ. So this access to Christ is an individual and a corporate reality. We said just a moment ago, no one, no one gets saved in bulk. We get saved individually. We repent and believe on Christ individually. And when we repent and believe on Christ individually, he puts us into a body corporately. And we become part of this body that draws near to God on the merits of Christ. And so how do we approach God? Verse 19, since we have confidence. Since we have confidence. Listen, if you're saved, God loves you. God loves you. And he delights in you being his child. And you're only saved because God wanted you to be saved. Nobody forced God to save you. Out of his own free will, he chose to save you. And he did it as a demonstration of, your, of his love. And based on this love that was expressed through the blood of Christ, the same love is true as we enter into his family, and so we can, we should, and we must draw near to God. That's verse 22. Let us draw near to God. So number one, let us draw near to God. Number two, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confessions. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So we are to hold fast to this confession without wavering, the the, the the phrase hold fast, it carries the idea of believing at some point and continuing to believe. We, we continue in belief. We continue in practice. We continue in following. We are holding fast. We are holding fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. But then he puts a, a description here in verse 23, without wavering. Without ra- wavering is a, a word that would, that would be used in New Testament times to describe an object that stands absolutely straight, and no matter the force applied to it, it's not going to bend one way or the other. It is, it is absolutely upright, and never will it lay down. And so you get the picture here that we are to hold fast to the confession of our hope with, without wavering. We lay hold of Christ, and we never let go, even in the slightest. Why? Because... The reason why we can hold fast and we will hold fast, verse 23, is because he who promised is faithful. It's just what we declared together. We are only holding fast because he's holding us fast. 
He will hold me fast. He will hold us fast. And so, therefore, we can be assured that we will hold fast to our confession. Now, the context, let's think about the context in which the writer is penning these words. The writer is, is sent, sent this letter to a group of Jewish believers who were very much tempted to back out and to bail out on this newfound faith that they had in Christ. Their, their temptation that they were facing was to return to the Jewish system of life, which Christ came to fulfill all of. And so the writer comes and tells him, look, in the middle of your pressure and Many of them facing intense persecution. You get to Hebrews chapter 11 and you see all these, this, this heritage of faith throughout, throughout history bringing to the point in which the writer's writing Hebrews. And the reminder is, hold fast, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our faith. And we can hold fast our confession because he's faithful. Look, you're not going to get saved and not be saved anymore. You're not going to get saved and then stop being saved. You don't have the authority to revoke your salvation. You can't. If you say, well, I did, well, then you were never saved. (laughs) Because, verse 23, the one who promised is faithful. God is greater than anything that we bring to the table that could cause us to potentially lose our salvation. And so we can hold fast to Christ because, and only because, let's be clear, only because He's holding fast to us. He's holding us fast. And so therefore we can say, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. God will, God will stand behind. God will fulfill His promise. And so we can hold fast to our confession. And so God has done his part, so we are actually enabled to do our part. He's thinking, well, Richard, it says right there, let us hold fast. It sounds like something that that should be obeyed. You're exactly right. Great observation. We should obey this in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That is a direct command that we are to obey. And the only way that we can obey that command is the second half of verse 23, who promises faithful. What are we holding fast to? What is the confession of our hope? The gospel. The confession of our hope is the gospel. It is the good news that God saves sinners by His grace and for His glory. And if you're saved, that's you. You are holding fast to this confession. But let's not forget the fact that this is corporate. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. This was written to a group of people. And so you get the principle here. Where are you going to be strongest? Individually or corporately? On your pride, you may say, yeah, I'm a, I'm, I can do this better on my own. Try it. And then repent and come back. Like, we will always be stronger together. That's, that's the biblical reality of one another. And so we collectively can hold fast to this confession. So, number one, let us draw near to God with one another. Number two, let us hold fast our confession with one another. And then number three, let us consider one another. Let us consider one another, ultimately encouraging one another. This is a clear one another statement here in verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together 
as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day approaching. Remember, this is corporate, this is plural. What is true is true for all of us in this reality of one another. So let us consider one another, let us consider how to stir up one another is the command. So the command to us is consider one another. Think about one another. Look toward one another. And then the two phrases, meeting together and encouraging one another, are descriptions of how we actually do that, how we actually consider one another. And so let's, let's consider, let's think, let's consider, consider. Let's think about the first phrase here, stir up one another. Let's consider how to stir up one another. The word here, stir up, it, it means to provoke, to incite. You can have a, a different translation that has a word along those lines. Uh, and usually the word was used negatively. In Acts 15.39, uh, the word is used there to actually describe the disagreement that Paul and Barnabas had over John Mark. There was a sharp disagreement between the two of them. It's the same word that, that we are finding here with this idea of stirring up one another. And the emphasis here is that verses 24 and 25 don't just happen. Verses 24 and 25 take work, take, take effort. And this is not just an individual effort, this is a corporate effort. So what are we stirring up? Let us consider how to stir up one another. What are we stirring up one another toward? Verse 24, we're stirring up, we're not just stirring things up, like that always has a negative connotation. What are we stirring one another up toward? Verse 24, toward love and toward good works. We're stirring... One another up toward love, this internal reality, an eternal conviction, and good works, this external expression. We are encouraging one another. We are stirring up one another to do the right thing. Which also means we are correcting one another when we do wrong things. But we're doing it in love. And so let us consider how to serve one another. The question, the question for, the, for the Christian in the context of the local church should constantly be for us. How can we help one another love rightly? How can we help one another love rightly? And secondly, how can we help one another live rightly? How can we help one another live rightly? So we want to see one another love rightly. That's what we're stirring up one another toward, toward love. So how can we help one another love rightly? And then... We're stirring up one another toward love and good works. So not just love rightly, but also live rightly. And we do this by reminding one another what we believe about the gospel and remind one another about how we behave because of the gospel. So how does this happen? This happens in verse 25 in two ways. By not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. That's the first way. The second way is but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. One way is stated negatively. One way is stated positively. And so one way is stated negatively because we are inclined to stated negatively because we are inclined to do this. So the negative statement is not neglecting meeting together, which means like we are inclined, naturally we are inclined to not meet together. So we don't neglect that. But we also are inclined to not really encourage one another. So the command there is to encourage one another. So let's, let's think about these two phrases, meet with one another and encourage one another. Not neglecting to meet together. Now, if you've been in church any amount of time in your life, 
you've heard Hebrews 10.25, and often it's kind of used as like um, the attendance police enforcement statement. Well, you know, the Bible says we're not to neglect meeting one another, which, I mean, is actually, it's totally correct. But so often, the emphasis behind it is not love, but it's legalism. And so we want to think clearly here. We want to think clearly here. That's not the intent. The, in, the intent of the writer here is not to go and give, give those who are in the church uh, privilege and authority to go around beating, uh, beating up one another because they don't attend church together. The, the word here, not, not neglecting meeting to one another, the writer is saying don't abandon these things. Don't cease from this activity. Uh, I think the New American Standard uses the word forsake. Don't forsake this thing. Don't forsake meeting together. And the phrase meeting together in the New Testament suggests some, for, uh, some sort of official assembly in which people come together for a unique purpose. In the context of Hebrews, we realize that coming together is worshiping the Lord at a specific point, specific time. And so the one, the one clear application that the writer makes in, ter- in terms of let us consider how to uh, stir one another up toward love and good works is we meet together. We meet together as a local body. And so this gathering, this gathering, the weekly gathering of local churches, this gathering is essential to our spiritual growth as a church and as individuals, which goes back to the question that we placed before us as we began. If this was missing from us for a specific amount of time, would your life really be any different? And if you say, no, not really, then the reality is there's a lesser value here. So we're, we're, we're encouraged here to not neglect meeting together, but also to encourage one another. This is, this is beautiful in that we have a negative command, a, a command stated negatively and a command stated positively. Don't neglect meeting together. The implication here is you are prone to neglect meeting with one another. So you have to be with one another. Don't neglect meeting with one another. Instead of neglecting meeting with one another, here's what you need to do. Here's what you must do. Encourage one another. Encourage one another. Which takes the legalistic emphasis out of the whole command. Right? The whole principle is to build one another up. It's not to beat one another down. No. Not at all. And so we are to encourage one another. And how, in the context of verses 24 and 25, how do we actually encourage one another? We encourage one another by fulfilling the first command to meet together with one another. So when we join together as a body, as an assembly, we are encouraged by one another. And so when I see you, when I worship with you, I am encouraged by you worshiping with me. We encourage one another collectively. You can't encourage one another alone. There's no way. You, like, this is not a self-reflective command. This is not encourage one another. That means you. This means us. And so the gathering of the local church here requires active participation. This, this gathering here specifically, this, this weekly gathering, this primary gathering that we have as Redeemer Church, requires active participation. Two, two realities that, that we have to constantly push back against. And we're all prone to these. One... We have to push back against being spectators. By just kind of sitting and observing, checking things out, cheer when things go good, 
boo when things go bad. This is not a football game. This is the gathering of the redeemed community. And so we push back against being spectators. But the, the other, maybe the more prevalent reality for us is that we push back against being consumers. There's a, there's, there's a, a common phrase, and sometimes it's valid, okay, I get that, but it's, it's used way too often for them all to be valid, that I just don't, I just don't get anything out of it. Like, which is often consumerism. Sometimes it's legit, all right? So if there's false teaching, find somewhere else to go. If I start teaching false and you don't fire me, well, then you need to find somewhere else to go, right? But we have to push back against being spectators, just standing off at a distance, but also being consumers, where I am here for me. No, 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 no. You don't, you, you don't, we're missing the point here. We are here for us which crushes consumerism. And so that, that, that's going to lead me to hold some of my preferences less tightly, some of my experiences less tightly, some of my hopes and dreams less tightly. I'm not going to compromise on the gospel, on the truth of the word, but I'm going to push back against consumerism. Our worship gathering, whether it's the music or the Lord's Supper or preaching or any other part, Testimony from overseas. Like, this isn't, this isn't just a service that's provided to us. This is actually a service that's provided for us by Christ. And so we feed one another. We encourage one another. And you can't meet with one another consistently and rightly without the one another's actually happening. So this brings us back to some of the truths we've already covered in the previous two weeks. One, we need you and you need us. We need you, and you need us. We need one another. That's the way God has made us. We are designed part of us being made in the image of God means we are made for a relationship. And we need one another. We can't obey these commands specifically in Hebrews chapter 10 on our own. And so with regard to this worship gathering, this meeting together, we need to hear one another sing. I need to, I'm the primary preacher, I need to see your faces when I preach. You have no idea how encouraging it is to, to preach the word and to see reception of that word. You need to be with one another as me or whoever else is preaching. I need to watch you lead your children. You need to hear how my week has been great or not so great. We need to, we need to know if one another isn't here. We, we need to hear about what God is teaching us. We need to know how to pray for one another. We need to grow together. And this only happens if we're rubbing up against one another. Consistently and purposefully. Pushing back against consumerism and spectator reality. And so close and regular fellowship with other believers is not just a good idea. <laughs> close and regular fellowship with other believers is not just a good idea. Close and regular fellowship with other other believers is an absolute necessity. Two concluding statements from verse 25. In verse 25, the writer says, Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. A statement of reality there, as is the habit of some. Some, in their context, had already begun to habitually be absent from meeting together. 
they were under pressure from persecution. Like, some of them were in fear for their very lives, so let's not lighten their situation. Our issues aren't typically persecution. Our issues are typically convenience. And so like, let's, just, let's just think realistically about, about the situation here. So a statement of reality, as is the habit of some. But then there's a statement of urgency. So verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. When the writer finishes this section with this phrase, as you see the day drawing near, he's communicating, hey, this is really, really important. Now get after it. Because this is urgent. This is urgent. We can't passively assume that encouraging one another will just happen. We must actually do these things. And so, some reflective comments and maybe some practical questions in light of our text. First question, what priority does worshiping with the body of Christ have for you? For you specifically. You might be here every week, and like this question is just as relevant for the person who's here once every so often and the person who's here every week, right? What priority does worshiping with the body have for you? Is it a take-it-or-leave-it reality? Or is it a be-there-at-all-costs reality? When I miss this gathering, I actually miss this gathering. Is that your reality? Or is it like, eh, no big deal. I'll catch it next week. One preacher said this about this text with regard to this meeting together. If you can miss church without being missed at church, something is missing. You know this is somebody else. I couldn't come up with all this. If you can miss church without being missed at church, something is missing. If you can miss church without missing church, something is missing. So, like, you hear this reality. If you can miss without being missed, something's wrong. And if you can miss without missing, something is wrong. And so we send out the text for Sunday. Sometimes we send out some songs that, that we're going to introduce on the Sunday. Another question to help us think about how we approach this gathering is, how did you prepare for this morning? Did you read the text? Did you pray? Did you try to get here a few minutes early to engage with one another, to possibly encourage one another? I mean, let's be realistic. Like, we can attend physically, but we can neglect spiritually. I mean, you can show up and look like everything's okay and everything's not okay. We get that. We understand that. That's why we have to encourage one another. But we can't encourage one another if we're not with one another. There's no long-distance reality here. And so for us, practically, we have two primary gatherings, a Sunday morning gathering and we have small group gatherings. We're starting a new one just in a couple weeks. And the question has to be, how do we obey this command to draw near, to hold fast, and to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, how to not neglect meeting together, but how to encourage one another. And so I invite you as your, as your pastor to commit to prepare for this weekly gathering. Commit for this moment. And it may mean you just put a hiccup in your schedule, carve out some time where you're going to just pray for every aspect that you are aware of and pray for the collective gathering. And not just be here, but really be here. Be part of what's going on. And then also commit to connecting to this one another expression through one of our small groups where the encouraging one another happens 
just a bit more effectively. It's a little more challenging to not encourage one another in, as the group gets smaller. Why do we do this? It's because we've been redeemed by God. It's not just because we all want to be better. It's not just because we all want to live happy, peaceful lives. It's because God has redeemed us. And in redeeming us, He's made us new. And so He cultivates things in us that are not inherently within us. And because of Christ, we can do these things. And because of Christ, we must do these things. Let's pray. Father, Lord, thank You for